Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 46th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. We're back in the 70s. Are you excited? Very excited. I like when we do the 70s. It's an okay. interesting time. I think this was a very interesting set of movies we watched this year. Yep. Very interesting. interesting. Good or interesting bad. We'll find out. Yes. <laughs> but yes, 1973. What's going on in the world? Where are we? What's 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 exciting like? times domestically? There's a lot going on in terms of the executive branch of the United States government. So mm-hmm. we've got Vice President Spiro Agnew resigning because he was facing tax evasion and bribery charges. And so Gerald Ford is sworn in as his replacement this year. Not elected. That's important. Very important. Because of the next thing I'm about to say, which is the Watergate hearings begin this year. And Richard Nixon says the best thing he's ever said, I am not a crook. A classic line. So yes, this all paves the way for Gerald Ford to become our first and to date only unelected president. Very interesting, Gerald. Wild stuff. Also in domestic news, this is the year of Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Good times for those 50 years and now it's gone forever. Which, of course, has been overturned, and we are where we are. Fucked. Yeah. Yeah. For a generation, at At least. least, yeah. Also happening this year in good news, the Endangered Species Act passes. So people were like, hey, we're losing a bunch of species. Maybe we should do something about that. Yes. Ah, How cool. This is a generally a pretty interesting time for the environment because this is close to when we passed the Clean Water Act, yep. Clean Air Act, all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, Nixon is responsible for the EPA, a shocking part of his legacy. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, again, not to give all the credit to the executive branch, he did veto the Clean Water Act and there was enough will in Congress, if you can believe it, to pass that thing. Yeah, Congress? Have you met Congress? Different times. Not today. <laughs> we got all that going on and we still also, though, pass... The Alaska oil pipeline bill, letting us <laughs> drill, baby, drill in Alaska. That's going to help the endangered species. Not really putting all the pieces together <laughs> on the environment. No, but they were trying some things. So that's some cool. Internationally, there's some stuff going on. Mm-hmm. This is sort of international, sort of domestic. The Paris Peace Accords are signed this year, ending the Vietnam War. Yay. Yay. Happy news. Also this year is something that we've talked about before. Well, sort of. Sort of. This is the year that the, you know, maybe U.S.-backed <laughs> coup in Chile happened. Uh-huh. That was maybe referenced in our 1982 film Missing. <laughs> maybe. We can't be sure. They don't mm-hmm. say the word Chile in it. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's happening. Go watch Missing if you haven't. And I believe we've referenced this because we've been sort of all around the 70s at this point, but the Yom Kippur War happens, the like fourth in a series of conflicts between Israel and the Arab worlds, just continuous wars going on. Fun times. Okay, let's just move right into our more fun news. We've got some sports news. Yay. Secretariat, a very famous horse, wins the Triple Crown. Such a famous horse. For the first time in like 30 years or something, it was big news. (laughs) 
And also this year is the Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King's tennis match against the super sexist dude that she won. And it was awesome. Yeah. So that's fun news. Way to go, Billie Jean King. And then we also have a section that we're calling Building News. <laughs> news about buildings. There's there's huge news in the buildings world this year, guys. The Sydney Opera House opens this year. Probably the most famous symbol of Sydney as a city now. Like, yeah. What else do you associate with Sydney? Nothing. Visually? But you know it. We said <laughs> Sydney do. Opera House. You pictured it. Mm-hmm. And also this year, the Sears Tower becomes the tallest building in the world. There was a bit of a, like a, I don't know why I was about to call it a space race, (laughs) but like a race going on. It is space in terms of height. True. But a a race going on among not just buildings in the United States, the Empire State Building and Sears Tower were sort of trading off for tallest, but all around the world, people are making those tall, tall buildings. People love to have the tallest building. It's a real claim to fame, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like the tallest roller coaster. <laughs> it's exactly like that. So that's the fun news. At least we had some fun news this year. We've definitely had years with no fun news at all. Yeah, we got some great buildings opening this year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let us talk about our nominees this year. We'll do our usual run through mm-hmm. and tell you the stats breakdown. So first we have American Graffiti a coming-of-age drama about the last day before two young men leave a small town for college. It stars Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, and Paul Lamette, directed by George Lucas and written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willard Pike, I'm guessing. Nominated for five at one zero. Up next, we have A Touch of Class, a romantic comedy about a married man trying to have an affair with a divorcee. It stars George Siegel and Glenda Jackson. It's directed by Melvin Frank, Written by Melvin Frank and Jack Rose. It was nominated for five and it won one. Best Actress, Glenda Jackson. Next we have Cries and Whispers, an art film about a dying woman and her sisters. It stars Harriet Anderson, Carrie Silwyn, and Ingrid Thulin. Directed and written by Ingmar Bergman. It was nominated for five and won one. Best Cinematography. Next up, we have The Exorcist, a horror film about a young girl who gets possessed by a demon. It stars Ellen Burson, Max von Sydow, Linda Blair, and Jason Miller. It was directed by William Friedkin, written by William Peter Blatty. Nominated for 10, it won two. Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium and Best Sound. And finally, we have The Sting, a caper about two con men pulling a job. It stars Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Robert Shaw, directed by George Roy Hill and written by David S. Ward. It was nominated for 10 and won 7. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, and Best Scoring, Original Song Score, and Adaptation, or Scoring, Adaptation. Make of that what you will. We don't really understand what that means. (laughs) Something to do with the score. Yes. Okay. So what were the five highest grossing movies of the year? The five highest grossing movies that year were, number one, The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Number two, The Sting. Number three, American Graffiti. Number four, Papillon. And number five, The Way We Were. So The Way We Were. Three of the nominees. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. So what won that year was The Sting, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Do we have any information about the general consensus at the time? Not a ton. 
I think we're sort of reading between the lines that it was a fairly uncontroversial win because it won seven of the 10 things it was nominated for. Um, but we didn't find a lot of contemporaneous stuff about like, ah, I can't believe this one instead of blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, when we look into some sort of historical consensus, we did find a couple of places saying that some other nominees probably deserved it more. So what are those? Yeah. So, you know, those lists on the internet where they're like, this shouldn't have won, this should have won. We found two that reference this year. Mm -hmm. There's a USA Today list that says The Exorcist should have won. And a CBS News article that said American Graffiti should have won. Mm -hmm. So again, still no consensus. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Now, are we specifically mad about it? Are you mad that the sting won? No. Me neither. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let us go through the other nominees and say whether or not we would have been mad about them. American Graffiti, would you have been mad? Yes. Yeah, I think me too. A Touch of Class. Yes. Same. Cries and Whispers. Yes. Yeah, same. The Exorcist. No. Agreed. Oh my God, we're in total oh, agreement wow. today. Wow. Look at us. 1973. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. okay. So we should talk about all of our double yeses first. Let's go in alphabetical, or- alphabetical order, rather. Why not? And start with American Graffiti. Tell me what happens in American Graffiti. Sure. So American Graffiti is about kids who've just graduated high school. Uh, It's set in the early 60s, so it's sort of like a nostalgia film. And we have these two teenage boys that are supposed to go off to the same college together. And at the beginning of it, Richard Dreyfuss' character tells his friend Ron Howard, you know, I might be changing my mind about going to college at all. And you're like, we're supposed to leave tomorrow, so I guess maybe make up your mind. And then the plot of the film is basically, I guess this is a cultural thing of the early 60s, they drive around. That's what you Mm -hmm. do to hang out in the night. If you find somebody with a car, you drive around the main streets and you sort of like all night say hey to people and hop from car to car like, oh, hey, can I can I ride around with you for a bit? Cool. And then there's just a lot of riding around. (laughs) So we've got various relationship things happening. Ron Howard has his high school girlfriend who he's trying to not break up with her, but say, maybe we should be able to see other people while I'm trying to open up their relationship. (laughs) Yeah. So he can Uh, go to college and sleep with girls in college, but still have her back home. Exactly. She doesn't handle that particularly well, unsurprisingly. Then we have, there's, in addition to our two main guys, there's also like this cool guy, like a kind of a Fonz type, Mm -hmm. who he graduated high school a few years ago. He's known for having the fastest car in town. So fast that people will come from other towns to challenge him to street races. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And so he's doing his thing driving around town. I guess you just pull up to cars full of girls and be like, yo, anybody want to hop in my car and drive around with me? And they're like, yeah. (laughs) They send a girl over to him. But of course, it's some one of the girl's little sisters that they just wanted to get rid of for the evening. And he's like, Oh, no, I'm stuck with this child now. (laughs) So he's having to drive around a child all evening. But they end up bonding. Mm -hmm. Also, Harrison Ford, a young Harrison Ford has has driven into town to try to challenge him to a race. So he's sort of around trying to get a hold of him to challenge him. Mm -hmm. We have Richard Dreyfuss's character, who's 
he sees a girl in a car and he falls in love with her immediately. And so his plot of the evening is trying to find the girl from this white Thunderbird. And so he gets into some hijinks, like a, a street gang does some initiation rites on him. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Eventually, the car race happens. The cool guy wins the car race, but he still feels like it's only a matter of time until he is unseated. He feels all of these challengers nipping at his heels. Ron Howard and his girlfriend end up getting to a place where she demands that he not go to college, and he agrees. So <laughs> he's now not going to go to college this year. <laughs> and Richard Dreyfus, meanwhile, he's come around. Now he decides he is going to go to college after he is basically unable to get to the girl that he has fallen in love with. And so the end of it is Richard Dreyfus goes off to college, and Ron Howard stays. And they tell you at the end what happens to them all for some reason, just so that they can tell you that the Fonz character ends up dying in a couple of years. <laughs> well, yeah. And then there's another subplot with another character you didn't mention who also dies in Vietnam. Yeah. They're like, thanks. Thanks for telling me this. <laughs> Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the broad strokes of American graffiti. What uh-huh. did you think of it? So the Richard Dreyfus thing ended up... Like, I have a big question about this movie, mm-hmm. which is whether Richard Dreyfus in Stand By Me is a reference to this film. In the end frame, they say that he became a writer in Canada. And in Stand yeah. By Me, he's the grown up writer yeah. person. And it's sort of the same story where it's a hard to grow up kind yeah. of movie, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And they do a similar thing where at the end, like, we find out what happened to all the kids and one of them dies in Vietnam also. They love just killing off characters after the movie in Vietnam. And you're like, thanks. Yes. Like, <laughs> So, like, it it created a comparison in my mind. And, like, Mm -hmm. Stand By Me to me is a much more successful movie. At the end of Stand By Me, I I feel a lot about all of these kids, you know? And the Academy didn't nominate Stand By Me. I will point out. Yeah, what the hell? Stand By Me is great. It is. It's really good. Whereas in this movie, I don't know. I didn't really feel too much about any of the characters by the end. And Mm -hmm. it was just kind of like stuff happening. Very slice of life. I was mostly bored if i'm yeah. honest yeah i mean a lot of the i've looked at a lot of the reviews that were all like wow it's amazing how well they captured this moment in time so i think it's one of those things where like if this was your experience you were like oh my god it's amazing this is what i did when i was in high school Me- yeah. meanwhile we watch and we're like okay first i said to you afterwards this is the least i've ever liked ron howard oh his character he is spends a dick. Most of trying to pressure his girlfriend into sleeping with him And she doesn't want to because he's basically trying to break up with her. And so you're like, this is fucked. I really hated him. No, no. You're not happy at the end when they get back together. No. For for either side, you're like, you should go to college. You shouldn't stay back with your girlfriend. And you shouldn't date him. Like, please go leave. I don't ever want to see you again. And then Dreyfus, yeah, you sort of just don't really care about his quest. The character I ended up liking the most was the Fonz character because he develops this like little buddy comedy thing with the little girl. Yeah, their (laughs) their bonding was cute. Yeah, but I just, it was like a fun soundtrack. But other than that, I was like, I don't really care about any of these people. I gotta say too, like, we're probably right now living through the most climate changiest summer we've ever had. Yeah, it's rough out there. And it's like really a little stressful to just watch these people just drive around their huge cars with terrible gas mileage all (laughs) night. 
knowing yeah. also, right, the gasoline is still leaded and you're just like mm-hmm. the air pollution you're creating <laughs> for no reason. It's really stressing me out, boomers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just sort of, I don't know. I guess this is one where if you are a, a man who was this age, this really works for you. But other than that, I'm not entirely sure why this is so highly regarded. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if like, you know, this inspired more this kind of ensemble cast sort of slice of life thing that, you know, pops up from time to time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Well, if it inspired lots of things. I saw Fincher said that the look of it inspired Fight Club. So like, that's cool. That's good. But yeah, I think like Linklater is supposed to take a lot of inspiration for this for Dazed and Confused and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. I- my, other, my other major thought was, so at the end of the movie, right, we have the race between young Harrison Ford. Yep. And Paul Lamatt and Ron Howard's girlfriend is now in the car with Harrison Ford. The girl he was driving around with straight up disappears. Don't know what happened to her. Yeah, he just leaves her at some point. Yeah. And so he picks up Ron Howard's girlfriend because she's like run off because they're in the fight, right? And so she's in the car when they do the street race. And for some reason, Harrison Ford loses control of the car. It like flips over a million times. Yep. They're fine. And then they're fine. They're totally fine. They're like instantaneously out of the car. I don't think they were wearing seatbelts. And then the car catches on fire. And I'm like, how are these people not dead? Magic. But that's what that that's that's what freaks her out so much that she's like, You can't leave me, Ron Howard. You must stay. I know. I I I think you're gonna regret this decision. Yeah. It just it was like, I don't that this is not a believable (laughs) car. These people should be dead. I actually the One of the only things that did kind of intrigue me about it was, and I don't remember his name, so I'm going to just keep calling him the Fonz. Mm-hmm. He's going through this existential crisis of what is my life for? Because he's built his whole identity about being this fast driver. And he's yeah. very much like, oh, they're all coming for me. I'm not going to be able to sustain this. And then once I lose, what will it all have been for? <laughs> Basically, right. even when he beats Harrison Ford, he's like, he was going to beat me if he didn't drive off the road. <laughs> I was losing. I was yeah. losing. I was like, I kind of was into. He had like some pathos. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think he was the most interesting character, to yeah. be fair. And yeah, he's sort of contrasted right with these kids who are going to go off to college because part of the reason that they're being urged to is they're like, look at Paul Lamatt. He never, he hasn't left this town. He's yeah. stuck here. Mm-hmm. You can't get stuck here like him. Yeah. And he feels stuck. Yeah. Poor guy. Honestly, <laughs> I feel for him. She just drive right out of town, man. San Francisco's an hour away. Exactly. Just, just go there. Go start a new life. You don't have to stay here. I like that it's like he he built up this legend for himself and then it became too too big. Like yeah. There's too much risk now. Anytime anybody actually challenges you, you're like one step closer to having nothing. My only identity is winning these races. So that was interesting. Yeah, I but, agree with that. But Ronnie Howard and Richard Dreyfus were sort of whatever. Yeah, I'm like, just go to college, kids. Yeah, exactly. Like, what are you complaining about? (laughs) Just go. (laughs) Okay. Yep. That's American Graffiti. Should we move on to A Touch of Class? A Touch of Class. Tell me about A Touch of Class. So A Touch of Class is about this married man played by George Siegel, who meets a woman at a a rec league baseball game that he's playing, and he sees her. And then he sees her again. And he says to himself, I'd like to have an affair with that woman. He's married. He has kids. Yep. And so he tells the woman he'd like to have an affair with her. She's divorced. She also has children. And she's like, chill. Let's do it. Yeah. He's like, I don't have anything else to do. So why not? Why not? 
So they go to Spain to have a week away to have their affair. And there's a little bit of hijinks about them getting there together alone. And when they get down to Spain, George Siegel's character runs into Paul Sorvino. Like a work colleague, basically. And there's some hijinks about him finding out that he's having an affair. At first, they're not really getting along down there. And then, you know, they get into a big fight. And then they have, I guess, really great sex. And now they're in love. Mm -hmm. And Paul Servino does figure out they're having an affair because they are not being discreet. And he's like, hey, man, I had an affair once. And I really fell in love with the woman I had an affair with. And eventually I was like, I got to make a choice. And it was hard. So just be careful. And so then they go back to London and they continue to have their affair and he's running around trying to juggle his marriage and his kids and his mistress. They set up a love nest and then at the end, he can't do it. She needs him to make a choice. It's just like Paul Sorvino said. Paul Sorvino basically is like, if you love her, you got to leave her because it's only going to be hard on her, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at the end, they don't stay together. He, I guess, stays with his wife. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's the movie. What do you think? I don't really get this one. <laughs> Tonally, it was very weird. <laughs> yeah, the movie ended and I went, what the fuck was that? Yeah. So, okay. Let me, let's describe sort of the journey of this. It starts so 60s. This feels like not of the era to me. It starts with like a theme song with the title of the movie in the theme song. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is not cool. <laughs> new hollywood (laughs) like this is like pretty lame and so then the beginning of it is seemingly supposed to be sort of hepburn and tracy kind of witty repartee thing Mm -hmm. and so there are like some kind of funny moments like there's a little slapstickiness to them getting away on their affair and whatever and there are vaguely funny moments throughout but then once they're in love it starts to try to turn to this more serious tone that just Mm -hmm. I don't get you're like not that invested in them as people and so then when they're in love and it's tearing their lives apart you're like okay (laughs) maybe just stop having an affair I don't know (laughs) it's not that difficult (laughs) and so I just was left at the end with like I don't I don't really know what that was all about like that was yes the ending is clearly intended to be very melancholy he sends her a telegram that's like I have to stay with my wife. And Mm -hmm. then he thinks better of it. Yeah. And so he tries to like retract the telegram, but it's too late. So he runs to their love nest and he's just missed her. The tone is clearly intended to be very melancholy at the end. And I think you're absolutely right. Like I'm watching this being like, you guys are both horrible people. So (laughs) like I just, (laughs) I just spend the whole movie feeling terrible for his wife who was completely ignorant to this. And he's just, you know, having this affair behind her back. Yeah. Because he's bored, which like, get a divorce, man. So with the melancholiness at the end, I'm like, all I'm doing is feeling bad for his wife and also for her children because she's in their love nest all the time at night. And I'm like, who's at home with your kids? With your kids? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, it was just very, I don't know, strange. The, the sexual politics of it are, yeah. you know, not, They're not great. Era. <laughs> They're not great. They're a bit dated. I didn't find it super funny. So I think it's an interesting nomination. Once again, we're always like more romantic comedies. And there are so many great rom-coms that have mm-hmm. never been nominated for Best Picture that are hilarious. And you're like, mm-hmm. this this is the one? Well, because they don't end up together. 
They w- they don't like rom rom coms with a happy people ending. People end up together. Yeah, this feels like it. Could, maybe it's a serious movie because oh, they don't something. end up together. Okay. <laughs> Although Roger Ebert's review is the end totally doesn't work at all with the <laughs> earlier stuff, which You're is like, true. Yeah, completely agree. What are we That's doing here? True. The only thing I think I laughed at is very early on when they're getting tea together for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he's on the phone to be like, can you get dinner? And she's like, well, well, let's have tea first. She's like, who are you talking to? And he's like, Derek, who's Derek? Derek is my male secretary. I just love the phrase male secretary. <laughs> is that a different job than regular oh secretary? Oh my God, Derek. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, it was whatever. You don't need to watch it. No. This was like the only movie that I couldn't get a dvd of from the library wasn't streaming free for some place so i had to pay four dollars to watch it i don't think it's worth four dollars no don't pay four dollars to watch this movie i wouldn't watch it at all unless you are like i don't know a george siegel super fan and want to watch all of his movies or something but like yeah generally don't no all right do you have anything else to say about a touch of glass nah let's move on Okay, tell me about Cries and Whispers. Well, this is a movie about a woman on her deathbed, Mm -hmm. and her two sisters and her maid are all there doing the final watching of her passing away, basically. And so they're all taking shifts to just be there for her in case she needs anything. She's in horrible pain. It seems whatever's happening to her is like a horrible, horrible, horrible way to die. it's rough. And so then you've got some stuff going on where she's having like memories of her childhood and her relationship with her mother and her relationship with her sisters. You also have the sisters going through some interesting stuff in their relationship with each other. You see some flashbacks to their various relationships. One of them seems to have this very cold relationship with her diplomat husband. Mm. And at one point she like intentionally mutilates her own vulva so that she won't have to have sex with him. So that's kind of going on. And you also have the other sister who is having an affair with the like doctor of the town. So she also doesn't really get along with her husband. And then she wants to be closer to the other sister. So she approaches her one day to be like, how come we can't have intimacy with each other? And so they tried to, share some things but then the angrier older sister ends up lashing out and saying mean stuff to her and then meanwhile the maid has a very close relationship with the dying sister Mm -hmm. unclear specifically what's going on but she does keep like bearing her breast and letting the dying woman lay on it there's a lot of biblical imagery going on. They, there's a scene specifically where it's supposed to look like La Pieta where she's holding her and then you know, she ends up dying, as you expect to happen, and mm-hmm. then all of the intimacy that the sisters have been trying to foster with each other sort of just goes away because this period of time is over. And so they're like, okay, we got to fire the maid, fuck her, even though she's been taking care of the sister for 12 years. And <laughs> then they sort of are like, I guess we'll see each other someday whatever and then they leave with their husbands and there is like a flashback at the end for of the last nice moments that all the sisters shared together Mm -hmm. i guess that's kind of sweet it's very arty what did you think of it very art much art (laughs) much art i had several thoughts about this movie Okay. I think the thing that you first see, obviously, is the production design of this movie yeah. is wild. 
red, baby. It's red. Now, you told me that this this idea came from a vision that yeah. Ingmar, Ingmar Bergman, Bergman had. a had. vision of four women in a red room, and that tells you really all you need to know about this movie. That is what it is. Yes. Although the thing that it reminded me of, and I was trying to see if this was talked about anywhere else, and I couldn't find anyone talking about it, is the opening part of Jane Eyre. She has an experience in a red room where she gets locked into the room for being mean to her cousin. And she basically has like a breakdown in the red room where she thinks she sees a ghost and passes out and is sickly and then she's sent away. And I think generally people interpret that as the red room is symbolic of her passing from girlhood into womanhood. Hmm. And obviously there's a lot of vaginal stuff also happening in this film. Sure is. Which is interesting. Although... I had a thought about it because I was like, I was watching it. I'm like, I feel like I'm getting it. I get what you're trying to say. There's, you know, you're talking about intimacy. You're talking about Mm -hmm. like these people are struggling to connect with each other. But there was like a disconnect for me. So I did read a quote from Ingmar Bergman that was like, I think he was trying to tell a universal story because he was like, if I told this story with four men, I think I would tell it in almost the exact same way, which I'm Mm -hmm. like, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think the like – Using the genitals as a symbol for intimacy is a very masculine thing to do. Like, I think if I watched a movie where a guy castrated himself because he was unable to feel intimacy with his partner, I'd be like, that checks out. Symbolically, that makes sense to me. But a woman mutilating her genitals in the same way, I'm like, that doesn't track for me in the same way. And. I feel like that was my main problem with the movie is I was like, the symbolism isn't resonating with the gender that you're using to tell the story. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. And I think part of it is just that it is a man trying to talk about the female psyche, even though he's saying I would tell it the same way. Like, clearly, this is a movie about women. It's inspired by his mother and his vision of the women. (laughs) But it's like... I mean, I guess even if in his mind he's telling a universal story, you are telling a story about four women and it's a man telling the story and it feels like it. Yes. (laughs) So things keep happening where you're like, they're acting so weirdly. (laughs) Is it just because he's like weird and it's artsy or is it weird because this doesn't feel like a way that women would act? Like it's just all sorts of stuff happening where you're like, I don't. And then there's the question too of like, is there like a cultural disconnect? Maybe this is very Swedish. I don't fucking know. But Someone I did, tell us. Because of all of this, I did find myself not connected to any of the characters, which was my main issue with it. Like, I yeah. didn't really – it didn't make me feel things right. <laughs> the way that I'm sure it was supposed to. <laughs> so that was my main issue. I, maybe yeah. I'm not cultured enough for this Maybe. <laughs> maybe it was too art for us. But, yes, I I was like, the yeah, this, the, there's a symbolic disconnect happening here between what I think of as being – like the female experience, which I don't think women associate intimacy with their genitals as much as men do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, generally. Well, and and that it's not the, just the genitals thing. Every time the sisters are getting close to some sort of intimacy, it takes on kind of like sexual undertones. Yes. And you're like, what is this? <laughs> like the stuff that whenever the sisters are getting closer, it's like they're about to make out, and you're like, what? Is what is going yeah. on? How am I supposed to feel about any of this? Am I supposed to be like, 
this is sexually perverse or am I just supposed to be like, oh, it's so nice that they're getting along. <laughs> like, I don't know how to feel about any of it. It did remind me of when we were talking about Sex Lies in videotape and I was saying to you, it wasn't surprising to me that that movie did well at Cannes because mm-hmm. it's a sex movie with a lot of face touching. There's so much face touching in this movie. Yeah, there's tons of face touching. People are touching people's faces all the time. And yeah. again, hey man, maybe that's really European. In America, we don't touch each other's faces <laughs> Not nearly that much. Not a big face touching people. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, it, this, there's some striking imagery in it. For Interestingly sure. shot. Yes. But I don't know. The, the story for me was sort of... I think connect. there was just a disconnect. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's move into our double nose. So Probably start with The Exorcist. I was going to say, yep. Because the sting is a winner. Tell me about it. Okay, so The Exorcist is about a number of characters. First, we meet an old priest. <laughs> we do. First, we meet an old priest, and he's at a he's at an archaeological dig in Iraq, and he finds some interesting artifacts, and then he sees this statue of a demon, and he's like, "Whoa!" Okay, and then we get to Washington D.C. And we meet a woman, she's an actress, and she's shooting on location, living in a house in Georgetown with her daughter. And we also meet a young priest who is the, a psychiatrist who helps other people in, in the priesthood work through, you know, crises of faith, anything that's going on with them. But he is also struggling because he has an elderly mother back in New York who is having more and more difficulty as she's getting older. And he feels guilty about having left her behind to take this opportunity down in D.C. And at one point she like has a bad fall and she's hospitalized and he feels bad about that. And then she also very shortly thereafter dies and he feels guilty about not being there for his mother. Meanwhile, with our actress and the young girl, the house that they've rented, at first they start hearing some eerie noises, some scratches in the attic, which our mother thinks may be rats, which is reasonable. And the daughter is developing some kind of illness. They have a a party one day where all the people from the neighborhood, like the local priest and her film friends and her director, who's this alcoholic, come by. And the daughter comes down and says something quite shocking to them all and also just peas while she's standing there in front of them and we're like oh what's going on with her and so the mother takes her to various doctors to try to figure out what's going on they think it might be something with her temporal lobe maybe she has a lesion they're not sure but she's getting sicker and sicker and one day the mom comes into the room and the bed is just like shaking off the floor and she's like this is pretty wild and they're like well she's probably having a seizure and the mom is like i don't know about that so anyway the doctors can't figure it out Eventually, they run out of options and the doctors are like, are you guys religious? Because maybe if you did like an exorcism, it would trigger whatever's happening in her Mm -hmm. brain to think like, oh, we've solved this problem. And so she first is like, nah, but then she has another super supernatural experience with the daughter. She's like, I got to get me an exorcism. So she goes to the young priest and he's like, we don't really do that anymore. Exorcisms are medieval but she's like nah my kid is legit possessed and so she brings the young priest in and he sees a bunch of weird stuff and he's like we got to do this exorcism and the catholic church is like that's fine but you don't know how to do that so we need to bring in someone who has experience and so they bring in priest if you will the old priest from the beginning of the movie father Marin, who had done an exorcism in africa not too long ago and it turns out that 
you know, she is possessed, obviously, and the, the like the demon knows Father Marin, and they work to try to get the demon out. The demon is able to kill Father Marin. And then basically, the young priest, Father Karras, solves the problem by bringing the demon into his body, and then jumping out of a window, killing himself, and I guess, trapping the demon in his corpse. I don't really know. And then Regan's fine. And it's the end of the movie and everyone leaves. And that's The Exorcist. What did you think about it? I think this is our first time watching it, both of us, right? It was very wild. <laughs> this is a very interesting movie. It's super controversial. This is one of the most controversial nominees for Best Picture in Oscars history. At the time, it was very controversial, but it was also a runaway smash hit at the theaters. America couldn't get enough of it. It was something that I think they tried to bury. They released in just a few theaters, and then so many people showed up that they had to go wide. And people were waiting for hours to go see this movie. And then it was so much for people that they were like passing out and vomiting in the theaters and having to get it taken away on stretchers. <laughs> what a time. What a time to be alive. So it's really, really crazy. It's interesting because I didn't find it to be that scary. Like it's one of those things where I think... You 70- didn't pass out and vomit? No. 70s audiences seemed very scared of this movie. So obviously things have changed a lot in how we make horror movies and what audiences can handle. But I said to you when I watched it, there was at least one scene that I found shocking as a 2023 yeah. viewer. <laughs> where I was like, I, I, first of all, I can't believe this is in this movie. Second of all, like, does this really need to be in this movie? So I guess I should talk about that. They're doing a lot of stuff with the possessed daughter. It's, it's like most of the movie is her possessed and she's getting worse and worse. And then her body's decaying. She looks worse and worse. She's vomiting up green bile constantly she looks bad they end up having to tie her down (laughs) to the bed because she's doing horrible stuff and the reason they have to tie her down to the bed is because the demon inside of her keeps trying to shock everyone around it by making her say and do like awful sexual things there's Mm -hmm. this crucifix scene which is the scene i'm talking about where i thought that was gonna be the scene yeah yeah where she has this crucifix that for some reason she keeps getting a hold of. The mother finds it under her pillow one day and is like, who put this there? And everyone's like, not me. Not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she is like stabbing herself in the vagina with the crucifix and yelling, let Jesus fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and at the mother. And you're like, she's like nine. <laughs> you're like, what are, we, what are we doing here? And this movie did not get an X rating, which a lot of people found very That is interesting. But that stuff was like, pretty damn wild i was like it, the shock value worked but even mm-hmm. as a as a me jaded 2023 viewer that i am i was like i don't know about necessary <laughs> to see that or make that child do that yeah. <laughs> like that was a bit much what was really interesting in terms of the difference of how 70s viewers view things is the scene that supposedly freaked out the viewers the most was when she's getting the cerebral angiogram. The hospital stuff mm-hmm. really terrified people, which I thought was kind of interesting. And you're like, that's just a medical procedure. I mean, she's like having a bad time. She's suffering. Oh, no, it looks it, awful. Which, yeah, which sucks. But they people were like, that cerebral angiogram, I couldn't handle it. And you're like, what? Did you see all the other shit that happened in this movie? <laughs> yeah, well, that's real. Someone was like, I don't want to get one of those. No, that sounds awful. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's certainly a hugely influential movie. There's tons of very, very famous iconography from it. I was intrigued by the characters. I thought they were, I mean, this all comes from the book, but I mm-hmm. 
the characters just felt like not obvious choices to me. Like when I first was meeting everyone, I couldn't understand why the mother was an actress and living in DC and all, like all of it, the details were taking me out of it. Cause I was like, what? And the what? <laughs> She's an actress. And like the house doesn't look rented. It looks like it's her house, but then it is rented. So all of that stuff, I was like, I don't get what's going on. And then I was intrigued that the priest is a psychiatrist, which I was like, is this a real thing? I didn't know about the priest psychiatrist. <laughs> so that stuff felt like, Interesting choices, not obvious choices. Mm -hmm. But it was a wild ride. This was quite a movie. Yes. So I I agree with you. There's some wild stuff in this movie to this day. But yeah, incredible iconography, very famous lines, although you were laughing at the beginning when I mentioned the old priest, because the line we thought we quoted the most from this movie, I need an old priest and a young priest, is not not a line from this movie. movie. It's from Austin Powers. For years, we've been saying to each other, I need an old priest and a young priest thinking it was from this movie. It's not. No one says that in this movie. So, you know, again, we've all seen scenes from this movie and it's been referenced very heavily. Mm -hmm. But the way it was structured, I was really surprised, like how much time we were just spending getting to know people and building up to what was going to happen. And then her illness sort of starts to happen in the background. Like we hear the scratches, right? And then she's she's in bed with her mom. One day her mom gets a phone call for an early call, right? And she sees that Regan's sleeping with her. And she's like, why are you here? And she's like, I, ha- I can't sleep. And you're like, okay. And mm-hmm. so you like know something's going on with her, but it's very subtle until the, the party scene where she comes down. I forget exactly what she says to everyone. She's like, you're all going to fucking die or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And then she pees herself and you're like, okay, yep. This seems bad. And then we get the very supernatural scene of like, you know, like the bed flying around yes. the room. But yeah, I thought it was fascinating for how long into the movie they are still going, there's got to be a rational explanation for this. We'll see the doctors. We'll see psychiatrists. The mm-hmm. priest at first is like, you know, I've seen schizophrenics. I've seen people with all kinds of mental illness. It's probably this. And then the exorcism was a much shorter portion of the movie than I thought it was going to be. I thought the slow build was really interesting, though. It worked yeah. really well. And and I like that the – like the we didn't say, but the priest doesn't want to do it at first because he's having a crisis of faith. Like he's not mm-hmm. even sure if he believes in God anymore. And then she comes to him like, I need an exorcist. He's like, what? <laughs> that's, that's not a thing. So I liked how resistant everyone was to it. Yes. You need this skepticism to make the story sort of work. But the stuff that they see happen is just like, at one point, the doctors have to come to a house call and the supernatural shit is going on. They walk in the right. room and the girl is being like thrown around the room. <laughs> the demon. Right. And they're still, they're bo- they all walk in and are like, oh, fuck. And then afterwards, they still are trying to be like, well, I guess. We should do some more testing. A spasm is like the thing that happens where your kid's trapped under a car and you lift the car and you're like, did we all just see the same thing? (laughs) But yeah, the way that people didn't want to believe it, didn't want to believe it, I thought was good. That structure worked well. Mm -hmm. It makes it, I think, much more realistic for the viewer. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was good. I thought the characters were interesting. You know, you're bummed at the end when Father Karras dies because you're like, oh, Oh, man. Well, and he jumps out the rough. window. This Okay, so we should say the people probably have heard of the steps, the Georgetown steps that are mm-hmm. famous from the exorcism. So running throughout the movie, there's a guy who dies having fallen down those steps. And it the evidence seems to point to the fact that he fell out of this girl's window. And right. so no one can explain it because it's not like this little girl could have overpowered him and thrown him out. Of well, also window. his head was turned all the way around. Yeah. 
Which they're like, maybe that just happened because of how he fell, just a freak accident, <laughs> yeah. who knows. So they're very important steps. And we keep seeing that the window's always open. We keep seeing the steps in the window and the steps in the window. And so then, of course, this is how Karis dies and he throws himself out. But he's not dead after he falls. His priest friend comes and mm. is like giving him his last rites and saying like, yeah. you sh- do you want to, do you have anything to confess? <laughs> and you're like, he's not dead. Like, this is awful. Everything is just so horrible it all goes the worst possible way but my thought when all of this has gone down so max von zedow is lying dead on the ground in the girl's bedroom Mm -hmm. father karis has thrown himself out of the window read the girl has become unpossessed and the cops are like barging their way in right after this has happened and i'm like there's no way this mother is not going to jail for child abuse like the girl has been tied to a bed Well, yes. dead people in here it looks so bad when they walk <laughs> it does it's a little unclear what her explanation is going to be i, that I swear she was possessed <laughs> but nothing happens they are able to leave she is so a famous person thing. so i guess maybe that, that helps go a long way Yes. So I, th- I think it's good. I think I agree. Like I was avoiding watching this movie because I'm I'm not always great with horror movies, but this did not scare me. So, you know, if, if you're super worried about that, but you have some tolerance, like it's okay. There is just some shocking yeah. imagery in it. But I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. There's just something sort of undeniably interesting about it. Like it's compelling. It's, it's compelling. It's provocative in tons of ways and still like 50 years later you're like whoa that's a movie that they made like some choices went into that so it's not surprising to me that at the time people were like what did we just see we have to go see that again that was totally crazy i actually read that this movie was primarily responsible for studios pivoting away from black exploitation movies because black audiences loved The Exorcist and they were like, oh, maybe they don't only watch black exploitation movies. You're like, wow, what an interesting revelation. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, yeah, to think about it, 1973, right? So one of the things too, like the impact of The Exorcist is it led to a huge increase in actual exorcisms taking place and people believing in literal yeah. devils and demons again, which is very similar to Jaws in the sense of you're like, I don't love that these movies led to this like... Yeah, that's not great. People, but I think what Father Karras was in the movie saying is true is like people didn't talk or know about exorcism. So this is like a new idea to people too, which again, for us as viewers, when he's explaining what exorcism is, you're like, yeah, 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 no, but we know because of the exorcist. Which is like cool and interesting, but also probably fairly responsible for the hard rightward lurch of evangelical Christianity in this country. Yeah, it's not great. And also, like, people do actually die in exorcism. Yeah, so it's not it's good. it's probably re- responsible for some deaths. That sucks. Because in real life, if you tie someone to a bed and don't give them food and water for a long time... They could die. They, they'll die. Yeah. And also, the issue is... You're definitely not treating whatever their real problem is. Yeah, they probably actually do have untreated mental illness. Yeah. So we don't recommend real exorcisms. The Mm -mm. policy of our podcast is don't do exorcisms. Yes. But this movie is very interesting. But you could watch this movie. You could watch this movie. Just don't watch The Exorcist. Don't do exorcisms. (laughs) I'll also say Linda Blair, who plays the little girl, she's great. 
She's really good. She's like so, so charming. The, the structure of it works really well because she's just like that cutest, sweetest little girl at the beginning. She has this very close relationship with her mother. You're like, oh, she's, oh, what a cute as a button, this girl. And then the what she becomes is like absolutely wild. Linda Blair does an amazing job. Yes, she's excellent. That's The Exorcist. So glad I've well, seen it. Me too. Hugely important movie. I'm very glad. Mm-hmm. But I will continue to say, I need an old priest. And a, and young, a young priest. priest. Well, we are quoting something. We're just not it's quoting true. what we thought we were quoting. I mean, to be fair, I also say the power of Christ compels you, which is power from of Christ this movie. compels you. But the the, but it's, he also says it in "I need an old priest and a young priest." Like, I does. probably am actually quoting Austin Powers You're when just I say quoting that. Quoting Austin Powers. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that's The Exorcist. Okay, that brings us to the winner, The Sting. The Sting. Tell me about it. Okay, so The Sting is about con men. We love con men in our mm-hmm. in our movies. So we have uh, a return to the classic pairing of Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Robert Redford is doing his fun con man business at the beginning. He has this partner that he works with all the time. And the two of them sort of accidentally end up stealing a bunch of money from the mob. They're just doing a regular old scam. And they end up stealing money from a guy who is supposed to be delivering it on behalf of the mob. And so now they have enemies. Probably shouldn't steal money from the mob. Mm-mm. And Robert Redford's friend ends up getting murdered. Oh, Very sad. And this guy's beloved in the con man community. So he goes to Paul Newman because right before he had died, he had said to Robert Redford, I'm getting out of the game. This is enough money for me to retire. You should go work with this other guy. So he goes to Paul Newman, who is like uh, a more seasoned older veteran con artist who he has a lot to learn from he does big cons and he decides like yeah we should totally con the guy who's responsible for this and i can get a bunch of people to help us because everybody loves this guy that got killed so let's set up a big con on this mob guy so this is the premise of it (laughs) and the the con involves you know various things they're running a fake bookie sort of thing and the the idea is to to convince this guy that they have a way to cheat the bookie system so that he'll put down a big bet and they'll be able to keep all of his money. And so it sort of follows the structure of like a heist movie. Like we set up our crew, we set up our scam, we have to, you know, put all of these things in line to convince the guy to trust us. Robert Redford's going through the whole movie kind of in danger because they're trying mm-hmm. to kill him because they know that he's one of the ones who <laughs> stole the money from the mob. Yes. He is sort of just like dodging getting caught long enough for them to be able to pull off this heist. Then he has also has a cop after him because he gave the cop counterfeit money. Mm-hmm. But it's because the cop tried to steal from him. The cop sucks. <laughs> he so, gave him counterfeit bribe money. Yeah, exactly. The cop is like, I won't turn you in if you give me cash. And he gave him counterfeit money. And so you're like, yes. that's fair enough, I think. So the cop's chasing him. The mob's chasing him. Eventually, when the sting is supposed, <laughs> supposed mm-hmm. to be pulled off, he ends up getting taken in by a cop, like an FBI who's working with the cop. And he's like, you got to turn in Paul Newman, basically. So if you just give us Paul Newman, we'll let you get away with it. We'll also let you pull off the sting and screw the mafia guy because we don't care about the mafia guy. Mm -hmm. So Robert Redford agrees to it. It's time for the sting. All goes off without a hitch. Our guy puts down $500,000 and then, you know, all hell breaks loose. The cops come in. There's gunfire. 
Paul Newman shoots Robert Redford. The cops shoot Paul Newman. It's crazy. It's madness. The cop takes the monster guy out of there and is like, without his money. And he's like, but my money's in there. And they're like, you gotta leave. It's all yeah. crazy. You or don't want to get fingered. caught. Yeah, because yeah. he's he's not only a mobster, he's like a respected banker. He does his like yeah. dirty stuff on the side. So exactly. he doesn't want so he's his like, You don't want to get caught. Face. You got to leave that in there. And he's like, oh, yeah. but my money. And they're like, oh, but your reputation. So he leaves. And then it was all the con all yeah. along. The cops Ooh. were on our The FBI was on our side. Robert Redford and Paul Newman are both fine. And they're best friends. And Robert Redford is like, Paul Newman had said to him, you know, We'll do this con, obviously. We got to do the con. Oh, yeah. But you're, it's not going to give you the sort of sense of revenge that you wanted. It's not going to bring back the dead friend. So then at the very end, Redford is like, you know what? You're right. It isn't uh, everything that I wanted, but it's pretty damn close. <laughs> and, so, and he doesn't even take his share of the money. And the two of them leave to go off and presumably keep doing cons, cons together. Yeah. Which is pretty fun. And that's the sting. What do you think of it? I think it's incredibly fun. It's so it's- fun. It's so well structured. It's well written. It's a reunion of our boys, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're so easy to watch. Yep. I think Robert Shaw is the the mobster is great. The performances are all good. Got a cracking entertainer soundtrack. Ragtime soundtrack, baby. Yeah. Love it. It's just, it's really pretty perfect. Yeah. I mean, the structure of it is amazing. The script is fantastic. And when are you not going to like Redford and Newman? They're just the best. I love Paul Newman so much. I love when he shows up. Paul Newman has been retired a little bit from the con life because he had a con go wrong. So he's just been out of it for a little while. And he's working with this kind of madam woman Mm -hmm. who has like a merry-go-round as part of her brothel. It's kind of a sick setup. Yeah, and like, Paul Newman is there doing maintenance on the merry-go-round. And I love when you first see him and he's in his maintenance overall. That was my favorite outfit. The overalls are so good. He's wearing a hat and, and denim overalls and like, you know, a tank top. And you're like, this is a great look, Paul. I love this. I, my note I wrote down in that scene was, God, I love Paul Newman. <laughs> it's a great look. He's so cute. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a ton of fun scenes. I mean, you're sad at the beginning when Luther dies. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, by modern standards, you're like a little unsurprised because he's like, I'm getting out of the game and yeah, they have yeah, this yeah. big score. And you're like, oh, it's still a bummer though. You but like they him. do enough to make you like him. And yes. and he, uh, Robert Redford is not just close with him. The guy has a family and a wife and kids and Robert yeah. Redford's like part of the family. And, yeah. you know, it's like very sweet. They all get along. Really and so nice. then when Luther dies, you're like, oh. Like, oh, this is sad. The initial poker scene is so much fun. When they're on the train with Robert Shaw, and he's he's doing the initial grift to get Robert Redford in, in Shaw's good graces. Mm-hmm. When Paul Newman reveals he has four jacks, you're just like, yes. Well, it's so good because the, the way they get in is they know that Robert Shaw's character cheats at poker. So mm-hmm. he's like, great, I'll go in and out-cheat cheat him. him because when you're cheating a cheater, they can't call you out. <laughs> so true. he ends up winning a bunch of money from him and the – you know, he's so mad. And he's like, what was I, I, I can't call him out that I knew he was supposed to have four threes. <laughs> Everyone else will know that I was cheating, which is just a great setup. That's it's so, so good. good. I also love, so the main guy who's running the day-to-day of the scheme is named Kid Twist. Mm-hmm. And he's also the guy who poses as the Western Union guy. Yeah. I love that guy. He's, he's great. great. He's really great. There's just a, it's a very good ensemble cast. Yeah. Generally, everyone in it is excellent. Oh, and the twists are good. So the cop twist at the end, but also I didn't even mention 
one of the things going on is there's like an assassin after Robert Redford. And Mm -hmm. you don't know who this assassin is. Yeah, Robert Shaw sent his best person, his best man. His best man to assassinate Redford. And so then Redford has this romance kind of going on with this woman who works at a diner. And you also keep seeing someone following him like the, those mm. sort of shots where black leather, yeah, black leather gloves and like shooting him from behind something where you're like someone's watching you and so then it all comes to a head where he ends up in an alley by himself and the guy with the black gloves comes out of nowhere and he's walking towards him with a gun and then the woman that he was dating is also coming down the alley and then the guy shoots the woman and it turns out she's the assassin and the guy with the black gloves is someone that Paul Newman hired to make sure that nothing bad happened to Robert Redford. That, That was one of my favorite moments in the movie is when Robert Redford and that guy come into the the fake, you know, horse racing place afterwards and they both give each other a little look and he's like, oh, you're still alive? And he's like, yeah, I'm still alive. Yeah, it's a great sweet. moment because the security guy walks in first without mm-hmm. Robert Redford and gives Paul Newman a face kind of like, I don't know, <laughs> like just to fake him out. And then Robert Redford shows up and Paul Newman's like, you're alive. And Redford's like, yay. <laughs> they have this happy, smiley eye contact. They're lovely. Yes. I will also say, I'll tell a quick story that the thing that this movie always makes me think of is my dad, and this will come up again in this podcast, is from Jamaica, right? And so there was a prime minister in Jamaica who was trying to reduce the amount of violence that was happening in the country. And one of his moves was they censored any movie that they imported to remove any gun violence Mm -hmm. from it. So my dad goes to see The Sting. And he gets to the end of the movie and it cuts from Robert Shaw being like, give me back my $500,000 to Robert Shaw outside of the building being like, they've got my money in there. And then they come back in and like, you know, it's the aftermath. And they're covered in fake blood. (laughs) (laughs) And the FBI is like, we did it. And my dad was like, this movie is very confusing. I don't understand what happened at all. (laughs) Like, Yeah, that's because they censored the most pivotal scene. (laughs) Which I think is very funny. It's great. Let me ask you this. Hmm. Butch Cassidy or this movie? What's your choice? I think I gotta go Butch Cassidy. I love I Butch Cassidy. I mean, this movie is great. It's super well structured. It's very fun. It's like the ideal con artist movie. But there's something so special about Butch Cassidy and the relationship between the two of them is so well developed and it's just like I think great. it's got more heart. It has that's exactly what heart. it is. And Paul and Robert are together more of it. Right. Also. That's the thing. Because in this one, anytime they are together, you're like, this is great. And they're like making the most of eye contact and smiles and stuff. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not together that much. They're mostly doing their own thing for the length yeah. of this movie. So in Butch and Sundance, you're like, I really love Butch and Sundance. Like, what a perfect mm-hmm. relationship that is. They're great. I feel similarly. Mm-hmm. But it's a great movie. It's great. You should all watch it. Okay. So... We obviously said two of these, sure, but we said no to three of the nominees. Mm-hmm. Did we watch anything else for this year? Anything else that maybe should have been nominated instead? Heck yes, we did. We watched several things this year. A combination of stuff we'd heard of and thought was supposed to be good. And then one thing that was a special recommendation from a guest that <laughs> we will speak about. Yeah. So the Three things we watched that we just were like, we probably should watch this were Enter the Dragon, a classic, mm-hmm. Serpico, and Paper Moon. And then we had a fourth suggestion, The Harder They Come. Also, from my Jamaican father. <laughs> but yeah, let's, I mean, we can just go in this order, I guess. Sure. There's no rhyme nor reason. So, Enter the Dragon. 
Enter the Dragon is a Bruce Lee film, the last one that was made before he passed away at a very young age. Passed away this year. That's something we would have mentioned in film news if we weren't about to talk about this movie. Yes. Very sad. Enter the Dragon is kind of like a James Bond movie, but with way more kung fu. Hell yeah. So we meet Bruce Lee's character and, you know, he's a monk and and a kung fu master and some like... I think it's not a government agency. It's some kind of non-government agency comes to him and they're like, we need you to infiltrate this Han guy's compound. He's a human trafficker and a drug runner and no one can get at him without any evidence first. So if we can find evidence that he has weapons because guns are illegal. We could get him or anything else that's going on. And Bruce Lee also has a personal motive. Well, sort of like a double personal motivation to go after this guy. One is he used to be a member of their temple and he's betrayed all of their values. Mm-hmm. And the other thing he finds out before he goes on this mission is this guy's goons are responsible for basically killing his sister. So mm-hmm. his sister and his dad were in town one day and all these goons started chasing after them. And instead of being probably like assaulted by them, she took her own life. Yeah. And so he's got personal reasons, philosophical reasons social reasons right we gotta take this guy down hell yeah and so the guise of it is that he's hosting this martial arts tournament on his island compound he does this every year i think he does it every three years it's basically mortal combat mortal combat took from this Mm -hmm. and so he goes as a participant in this tournament we also meet a couple of the other participants we meet a black guy who is just generally a cool dude he's so cool yeah. And then we meet this white guy who has some gambling debts and needs to make some money to pay off his gambling debts. And yeah. it turns out the white guy knows the black guy from Nam. Yep. So they're friends. And so <laughs> they all go to this tournament. And while they're there, Bruce Lee is trying to investigate and figure out what's going on. He sort of becomes friendly with the white guy and the black guy. He's out one night and no one's supposed to be outside of the rooms in the evening. And so is the black guy, but the black guy isn't doing anything. And Han ends up killing our our black lead because he thinks he was maybe the person snooping around. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he's trying to get someone to like be his second in command to help run his operation. So he tries to bring in the white guy but when he shows the white guy that he killed his friend, he's like, I don't really want to do this. Yeah, he no, killed my, my buddy. And so at the end, there's like a huge fight between, uh, you know, all the forces of good and the forces of Han. And in the end, Bruce Lee takes him out. Mm-hmm. What did you think of this? You hadn't seen this before. I had not seen this before. I thought it ruled. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome, right? This movie is cool as hell. It is probably the most influential martial arts movie of all time, but it's also a spy movie and a black exploitation movie. It's got it all. It's got anything you could ever want from the 1970s. I think the main bummer of it for me was that Williams, the black guy, has to die because from the beginning, I was like really ready for them, the three of them to team up. I was like, this team up is going to be so fucking cool. And then, unfortunately, they kill Williams to be the, you know, motivating factor for Roper, who's the white guy. And it's like, I would have liked it more if we were all fighting together. But other than that, Mm -hmm. it was sick. (laughs) The fighting was great. Bruce Lee rules. The storytelling is excellent. I love how efficiently we get into it. It's one of those things where at the beginning they're like, 
here's the mission. And you're like, great, we're on the mission. And then they introduce you to Williams and like you get one scene where he beats up a cop and steals his car. And you're like, I'm on board with this guy. (laughs) And you meet Roper and, you know, he has gambling debts. Everybody has like one thing that is animating them. And then we get there and it's like sweet action, super cool. The characters are great and it's kick ass. What's not to like about Enter the Dragon? It's a ton of fun. I also love, so in the scene with his sister, they let that actress also have this extended fight scene where you're like, they she's let awesome. her hold her own yeah. for a long time until she's mm-hmm. surrounded by six dudes. And they're like, well, that's tough. So that was cool too. And yeah, you like everyone. I'm sad when Williams is killed. I'm like, I know. Oh. Williams was super cool. <laughs> and he does at least have like a cool last line. When he's getting mm-hmm. confronted by Han, Han's telling him he should prepare for defeat. And William says, I don't waste my time with it. When it comes, I won't even notice. And Han says, oh, how come? And he says, I'll be too busy looking good. <laughs> You're like, also, like yeah, everyone in this movie looks so good. Yes. The styles are on point. Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. There's really, again, famous iconography and shots from this movie. You will have seen gifs of it everywhere. You will have seen it in other things. It's so tragic that Bruce Lee died. So it's young, really awful. Because he's incredible. He's incredible. Yeah. But you the were. Fir- I was going to say the first time I watched this movie, and every time I watch anything with Bruce Lee, I'm like, what is his body fat percentage? Like is zero. Zero. I don't know how he's alive. <laughs> it's just like you see all of the ligaments of all of his muscles. And you're like, this is incredible. Yeah, I'm worried for your health. But yeah, I mean, it's awesome. What's not to like? It's, did you spot Jackie Chan? I didn't. After I watched it, multiple people were like, did you see Jackie Chan? And I was like, no, I didn't know to look no. for it. <laughs> it's in the it's in like the second bit when he's infiltrated and there's a guy who like puts his arms around Bruce Lee and then he grabs him and he's holding his head backwards and mm-hmm. that's Jackie Chan. So he's kind of like on screen for a minute. But yes, yeah. I think if you're not looking for Jackie Chan, you might you not. You mean you're mostly just looking at Bruce Lee. Jackie Chan. I can't take my eyes off Bruce Lee for a second. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's cool as shit. If you haven't seen Enter the Dragon, cannot it's recommend enough. It's a fun time. Mm-hmm. All right. Want to tell us about Serpico? I would love to. So Serpico... One of Al Pacino's most famous roles is based on a real guy, Frank Serpico, who was a New York City police officer. And basically, it's about how extraordinarily corrupt the entire NYPD was and the Mm -hmm. efforts that he went to to just even try to, like, have a normal job. He's basically just trying to, like, not have to work with the corrupt cops. And the byproduct of that is that he ends up having to take down a bunch of corrupt cops. Because they are all, all taking mm-hmm. bribes from, like, every criminal in town. And if you won't join in on the bribe-taking scheme, then how do they know they can trust you? So he keeps moving from precinct to precinct, trying to get away from the corruption, and there's nowhere to go. So he has one friend who's, like, a pretty politically savvy kind of cop friend who's making a lot of moves up who keeps trying to help him out by finding some person he can report this to but of course everyone they end up reporting it to also sucks and then pretty late in the movie he ends up getting one captain who is actually cool and helps him (laughs) to try to fight the corruption within his own station so we get there like two other cool people in the entire NYPD, but that's basically it. And so the structure of it is 
he starts the movie as like kind of a cool, fun-loving guy. <laughs> he's graduating. Well, actually, he starts the movie getting shot, and the whole thing is flashbacks. So you know he's been he's been shot at the beginning. And we don't like, want you to think that the scene where he's been shot in the face is him being a cool, fun-loving. Guy. No, he gets shot, and then they're like, "Didn't any of the other cops help him?" And you're like, "Nope." Of course not. So you're like, how did we get here? And then we flash back to him graduating and mm-hmm. coming in and being like, I'm going to do so much good and I'm going to become a detective and I'm going to help people. And you're like, that's so sweet that you think that. And he's just kind of like a goofy little guy. He's an intellectual. He becomes kind of a hippie over the course of it. And he like meets a girl, has fun with this girl. But pretty quickly into the job, he's confronted with the fact that everyone is a dirty cop. So he's trying mm-hmm. to just like, they're handing him money and he's like, I don't really want this money. They're putting him into this other gig. He wants to become a detective. So they put him in a job where he uh, is supposed to be doing like fingerprint analysis. Mm-hmm. And they also don't like him there. Nobody ever likes him because in addition to being clean, he is also kind of weird because he yeah. like has facial hair and reads An books. interesting style of dress. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So they don't like him. So they try to frame him for being gay while he's there, which is interesting. The story takes place over 11 years, I think. And it's kind of about his increasing isolation and the toll that this quest takes on him. Because he starts very fun. And then he just like his first relationship with his initial girlfriend, she tries to get him to marry her. And he's like not having it. So she leaves. And he ends up getting into a relationship with his neighbor. She's also lovely, but he is it's kind of like it made me think of zodiac like his quest and <laughs> destroying his relationship with his wife it's that sort of mm-hmm. thing where like he can't let this go and she's like you're so depressed can't you maybe just quit being a cop <laughs> and then you'll be less depressed and he can't do it so that relationship is ruined as well and he just gets like more and more beaten down until finally there is like a grand jury investigation and i think they end up testifying in front of congress by the end of it and so, the, it, of course, the scandal goes, like, all the way to the top. They do finally make him a detective after he survives getting shot in the face, which is like, thanks for this. And he's like, but I really don't want it. He ends up quitting the force and moving to Sweden, I think. <laughs> so Switzerland, Switzerland, I at the end of the movie. But that's the general arc of Serpico. What did you think of Serpico? First, did you spot Judd Hirsch? There's Judd Hurt. I'm missing people right and left in these goddamn movies. He's also in the background of a scene. It's I don't know if he's in the scene initially when Serpico's brought into the hospital, but when Serpico's parents come to visit, he's one of the cops and he's just like behind Serpico's mom. And you're wow. like, oh, Judd Hirsch. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting, right? It's an interesting story. I don't know that it's like shocking to a modern viewer to Certainly be like, not, no. hey, look at all this corruption. I think it's a little long. It gets kind of like repetitive in the middle. And I understand that they're trying to show that it's ever it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I get it. I got it. Yeah. This could be a montage. You know, the female characters are largely underwritten. Mm-hmm. I think Chino's performance is very good. His outfits are insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good. What are your thoughts? I really liked it. I was not sure what to expect going in because anytime we're going into some sort of cop thing, I'm like, this could be not great. <laughs> but it was like, I think the best version of what a cop thing is. I understand thinking that it is a little long. I do think 50 years on, yeah, audiences watch this and are like, obviously the cops are corrupt. We know. <laughs> I thought it was interesting 
in the movie, there's a point when with his second girlfriend, he's like, does any of this surprise you? Like, I come home every day and I tell you stories about the stuff these awful cops are doing. Are you shocked? And she's like, not really. (laughs) Everybody knows about cops. (laughs) And he's like the only one who is naive enough to be surprised by the whole thing. I really liked it. I mean, I thought that his arc was interesting and the way that he starts out so full of life and then is beaten down by the process of it was cool. And I told you, I wanted it to remind me of Starsky and Hutch. And I think Hutch is so Serpico coded. <laughs> I think there is influence from this movie. on. Well, Starsky I think and what's Hutch. interesting is he's kind of both of them because yeah. Starsky is the one who knows the streets, right? And they keep being like Serpico, sure. you know, the streets. So it's yeah, like yeah, if they yeah, split yeah. Serpico into two people. He becomes Starsky, Starsky and, Hutch. and Hutch. I mean, yeah. you're not wrong. There's plenty of that like street wiseness to him. I just think I thought that's a pretty traditional cop trope. And the stuff about Serpico that is like nerdy, hippie nature boy is untraditional cop stuff. And I was like, this, they took all of these things for Hutch. I'm surprised um, they never gave Hutch a cockatoo. Yeah, uh, the thing, the one thing they didn't do, like he does have a garden and plants and stuff, which is very Hutch, but Serpico keeps collecting animals. He has a dog and then he has a mouse and then he has a bird. <laughs> You're like, what's, when are you finding time to take care of all of these animals, first of all? But I thought it was really good. I liked it. I get why this is a classic Pacino performance. And I thought it was good. Hell yeah. Look out for Judd Hirsch. <laughs> Look out. I, and look out for Judd Hirsch. Look out for Jackie Chan. I wish I knew all of these things, mm-hmm. but I didn't. There's hanging around the background. Yep. Being pre-famous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Shall we talk about Paper Moon? Sure. So Paper Moon is about a man who goes to a funeral of a woman he knew. And there's a little girl there and they're like, are you his dad? And he's like, nah. And they're like, well, can you take her (laughs) to her aunt anyway, if you're going that way? And he's like, I guess. (laughs) And so he ends up taking this little girl. Initially, he's going to drop her off at the train and just send her on her way. But he basically gets $200 out of someone who he's like, you're responsible for this girl's mother's death. And then she's like, that's my $200. So I got to stick around until you pay me. My two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and so he ends up bringing her along. And he's a small time con man. His main like play is he finds people who have recently died and runs up to their widows and is like, "Oh, he bought a Bible for you, a deluxe Bible for you before he died. Should I take it back? Should I get you know if you want to give me back the one dollar deposit?" But it was twelve dollars, and so he's basically wheedling twelve dollars out of widows. <laughs> Is his primary con. I love a play. And once the little girl's with him, she's very good at conning people. So, like, she spots that someone is really rich and she's like, no, it's $24. And she's able to get $24 out of someone. So, they're kind of going along and, and bonding as they start to con people together and, and build up to that $200 that he owes her. Part of the way through the journey, he meets a, a woman that he's interested in who's a dancer and she comes along for a while and she's maybe conning him by getting him to buy her all kinds of stuff and and spend the money that again is supposed to be this little girl's two hundred dollars and so there's a segment of the movie where the little girl works with the dancers maid to basically get her caught sleeping with another man (laughs) and it works like gangbusters 
It does. It does. They keep going along. They end up getting into a con that's over their head where they try to consummate. The bootlegger is the brother of the sheriff. And so they're arrested and then they have to escape from prison and then they're on the run. They make it over the state lines and then they can't get captured by the cops. But the cops come across the state line and beat up the guy anyway. And so they're they're not sure what to do about that. But they basically make it to the aunt's house that he's supposed to deliver her to and he drops her off even though she doesn't want to go. And she's sitting with the aunt and she's like, nah, this ain't for me. I got to keep going with this con man. I love him. Maybe he's not my real dad, but he's sort of Or my maybe dad. he is. He might be her dad. <laughs> and so she runs after him and he's like, I won't keep bringing you with me. And she's like, you still owe me $200. And then they go off together. And that's <laughs> Paper Moon. How'd you feel about it? I really liked it. I found it quite charming. We didn't say, but this is Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill, his real daughter. She ended up winning the Oscar for this, which is cool. If I was Linda Blair, I would have been pissed. Little baby. Yeah, I feel that. Linda Blair was amazing. But we've talked a little bit about Ryan O'Neill on this because, honestly, we the did things Linda. that we've seen him in, we haven't loved. And I liked him a lot in this. This is the most I've liked Ryan O'Neill, I think, because he and Tatum have very natural chemistry, unsurprisingly. She's very funny, little plucky con artist girl. The hijinks that they got into, I thought were fun. I really liked the script. This is an Alvin Sargent script who wrote Ordinary People. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of stylish, fun, period piece. And con artists are just fun. <laughs> I liked their hijinks and I liked their chemistry. So I had a good time. Yeah, I had the thought of like, maybe this wasn't nominated because they were like, can we nominate two movies about con artists in the 30s? Is that... Is that too much? Maybe that's just like the thing. 1973 is all about con artists in the 30s. Could be. So I was a little averse to watching this movie because, yes, we did not like Barry Lyndon. And I only know two other things about Ryan O'Neill. I know the clip of him from that one movie where he gets that letter and he's like, oh, God, oh, man, oh, God, oh, man, oh, God, oh, man. It's like some of the worst acting you've ever seen. And then the other thing I know about Ryan O'Neill is he was a horribly abusive father. And so I was like, I don't know that I want to watch this movie with this father and daughter knowing that she is having just like the worst time and is going to continue to have the worst time in the future. Mm -hmm. And so obviously that's very extra textual to the film. And I will say that like, I don't think I got over that as I was watching the film, but it is good. It's quite good. They're very sweet together in the film. It's super well written. You know, all the characters that we are introduced to are interesting. The cons are a lot of fun. It's well shot. It's good. Yeah. It's a quality movie. That's not a fun piece of extra textual information, though. No, no. It's like, yeah, the stuff he did to his kids is like really gnarly. I don't know about it. Oh, you didn't know about any of that? I don't want to know. All right. Well, now that you all know that, you're probably not going to want to watch this movie, but it was good. (laughs) It's a good movie. Good movie. I unfortunately read that when they were initially developing it, and I don't know if this is before this director or this writer came on board, it was going to be Paul Newman and his daughter. I'm like, that's great. Yeah. I was, I think, I haven't heard any stories about Paul Newman other than nobody ever hears any bad stories about Paul Newman. That's Paul Newman's thing. I saw that as well. But, well, man. It sucks when bad people make uh, art that's fun. I know, I know. Don't love that. But that's Paper Moon. Yeah. Okay. I should say the the woman that he has the relationship with is Madeline Kahn, and I love Madeline Kahn. Well, she's always great. Yeah. I also really liked the actress who played her maid. She was awesome. 
She was And great. she her chemistry with Tatum O'Neill was hilarious. The two of them yes. doing their scheming, I loved. I liked them together too. Yeah. Shall we talk about our fourth film, The Harder They Come? So yes, I was talking to my parents about how we wanted to watch more international cinema. I was mm-hmm. mentioning that to them, which we've mentioned on this podcast before. My dad was like, oh, you need to watch The Harder They Come. It's like the most important piece of like Jamaican and one of the most important pieces of Caribbean cinema. And mm-hmm. I was like, when else are we going to watch any Caribbean cinema? Let's Probably do it. not often, yeah. And this is the movie that introduced reggae to the world. Pretty important. Pretty important. What happened in, what happened in The Harder so, They Come? So The Harder They Come is about this kid in Jamaica who comes to the big city to tell his mother that her mother has passed away. And so she's like, okay, thanks for telling me. Not in time for me to go to the funeral. You should probably go back to the country and continue working. And he's like, no, no. Now that I'm in the city, I'm definitely going to stay because I think I have what it takes to be a musician. (laughs) She's Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Okay, sure. So he sort of like farts around for a bit. There, There is a main guy in the city who records people he has a recording studio and if you go and audition for him and he thinks you're good he'll let you record a record and then he sort of controls what gets played on the radio he's trying to get an opportunity to do this in the meantime there's a lot of weed coming into the town and so he makes a friend who is getting him involved in the, the ganja trade and it's sort of like overlooked by the cops because it's just so common that they're like we'll pay off the cops and the cops are fine with it So he gets involved with this, but he doesn't like that he only makes a little bit of money and the rest of the money goes up the chain because everybody's got bosses, man. This is always the way. (laughs) So he's doing his little side gig, but he is discontented. And so he ends up threatening the people that are ahead of him and he ends up getting punished. He's not in jail, but he's he's like whipped for his crime. Well, that's before. Now it happens twice, right? No, the I think the whipping we see second is a flashback. Okay. That's before what? So he ends up getting arrested and he's whipped, right? And mm-hmm. then later on when he's making trouble with the, the weed trade, they say, oh, let's just have him put in jail for a while so he'll learn a lesson. And so he's driving by that cop yeah. and he has a flashback once the cop starts chasing him to when he was whipped. And he's like, uh, I don't want to go back to prison. Yes. And then and he, so he shoots, shoots and cop. kills the cop. And that's a bigger problem. <laughs> But that doesn't that happen later? After he's already made his recording? Well, he doesn't get into the weed business until after he's made his recording. What does he get whipped for initially then? Because he definitely gets whipped before he makes his recording. Oh, he gets in trouble because he cut up the guy at the Oh, okay. So yes, that is what happens. There's this early scene where he's staying with this pastor because he offered to give him a job. The pastor is the guardian of this girl. And Mm -hmm. so he's trying to date her. The pastor will have none of it. He has been fixing up a bike while he's there. And then eventually it comes out that he's been seeing the girl. The pastor is like, you got to leave. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll leave if I can take my bike. And then a guy that works for the pastor is like, it's the pastor's bike. You can't have it. And he like slashes the guy's eyes out. Very violent. So then, yes, yes, (laughs) he gets in trouble. He gets whipped. After this, he gets to record a song. Mm Mm-hmm. The song is excellent. It's the titular song, The Harder They Come. And so the guy who let him record it is like, great, I think I can use this song. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. 
like no back end, no nothing. I'll give you twenty Real bucks. Real Barry Gordy, and I'll move. use it for whatever I want. And he he has a moment of like knowing his worth, where he's like, I think I could get more than twenty bucks if I could own the song and get it on the radio. So he's like, I'm not taking your twenty dollars. And then he goes around to get the different radio stations to play it, and they're all like, the guy who you said no to is the only one who decides what we play on the radio. <laughs> so we're not going to play that. And so he ends up having to go back and take the twenty dollars from the guy. It's very depressing. And then. Yes, the things happen with the ganja trade. He is making trouble because he doesn't want to take the little amount of money that he can get. Yes, at one point he is going to get arrested, doesn't want to get arrested because he got whipped, shoots the cop, and then he's like an outlaw at this point. Mm-hmm. He's hiding on the island. The They continue to play his song on the radio because he now has notoriety and they're like oh, this guy's hiding on the island and he also has a song. (laughs) Don't you want to listen to the song? And so the song is like getting wildly popular everywhere. He at this point has killed several cops because he gets into a conflict with cops that are coming for him and a bunch of them are dead now. And so the cops are trying to crack down on this and they're like, we really need to find this guy because it is an embarrassment to us that he is still out there. And so they decide they're going to crack down on the ganja trade in an effort to apply pressure to all the people so that they will give him up. And throughout all of this, he has still been with the girl that he liked, who the preacher was the guardian of. And they have kind of an interesting relationship. (laughs) And she wants him to sort of settle down and not get into trouble all the time. But he keeps getting into trouble all the time. And... She is very friendly with a friend of his who has a kid and she was like helping out with the kid and has kind of a lovely idyllic little life with this friend. And then eventually there's so much pressure applied that she sort of agrees to, to give him up to the cops and they trap him on like a beach somewhere and it ends in a big shootout that unsurprisingly he does not win. But it's kind of a flashback to them watching like a there's a scene early on when they're all watching this old Western with Clint Eastwood and they're talking about how like the hero never dies in the first reel. <laughs> so mm-hmm. then, you know, he dies in his shootout at the end. And that's the harder they come. Thoughts? I thought it was very interesting. I liked it quite a bit. Obviously, the reggae is cool. Yep. I thought Jimmy Cliff, who plays the lead, was really good in it, too. Yeah. He's like, you know, he. For a musician, musician actor, yeah. Yeah, I thought he was quite good. You know, you're starting and he gets America, America. I know, I thought of that so much. He gets to town and immediately loses all of his belongings to someone <laughs> who robs him. Because country bumpkins are gonna get robbed in the city. It is. It's, uh, it's you know, as the meme now goes from across the Spider-Verse, it's a canon event. If you're going <laughs> to come from the country to the city, you will lose all of your possessions. Yep. But they do it very quickly in this movie. I'm like, in America, Mary was drawn out. It's like 30 seconds, he's lost all his shit. And you're yep. like, you gotta uh, keep an eye on your staff, bud. Yeah. And then, yes, he's like struggling to get a job. There's, I think, some interesting commentary on that. There's a part where he wanders up to this wealthy person's house. And he's like, I'll do anything. I'll do any work for mm-hmm. you. I'll do any work for you. Okay. And she's like, I don't have any work. You can't do any work. And he's like, well, can I at least have 10 cents? And she's like, you young men, all you do is beg. Why don't you do something productive? And you're like, well, <laughs> like, there are no jobs. He just told you he would yeah. do labor and yep. you just told him no. So like, yep. mm, I don't know. And then, yeah, as you get deeper into the movie, once you get to the weed trade of it all, you know, there's interesting conversations about, again, police corruption and the relationship between 
the state and these people who are doing this sort of illegal thing, but the state doesn't really care about it as long as they're getting a cut of it, right? As long as they actually have control of it. And there, I think there's also an interesting parallel drawn between like the power structures happening there and these sort of, again, legal power structures within the recording industry where no matter where he is, he can't make enough money mm-hmm. because someone always is concentrating the wealth onto themselves and it's yep. creating societal problems yep. down the line. Yep, yep, yep. And so that's interesting too. And yeah, I liked it. I think, you know, it's sort of, it reminded me a little bit of City of God mm-hmm. and a little bit of Bonnie and Clyde. I loved and- that he had your traditional outlaw photo shoot. Once yes. he's on the run, he goes somewhere to have pictures taken of him holding his guns. That was very guns. Bonnie Because <laughs> he like, mailed it to this. the paper as well to be like, publish this. I look cool. And they're uh, like, he does look cool. Yeah, we got to publish The cops this. are like, you can't publish that. And they're like, how could I not publish a photo this cool? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to publish it. And then, yeah, it's interesting, right, that what makes him famous is this violence, right? Is this becoming an outlaw. That's what leads him to the notoriety. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought it was interesting, given what happens later, right, with, like I mentioned earlier, with the sting, there's a clear connection, right, between film violence and the shootout at the end. So I don't know if Michael Manley watched this movie and he was like, hmm, this, this is, is what's contributing to violence. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth a watch. What were your thoughts? I had a lot of the same thoughts as you. The America, America thing I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and then stylistically, it's it's very interesting film. There's a lot of like cool naturalism to how it's shot. Jimmy Cliff was great. I really liked a lot of the characters. I thought that the character actors were good. And then the tie to the Western. I loved the flashbacks to them watching the Clint Eastwood thing at the end. I loved the recurring you can get it if you really want playing every time like something was happening i love at there's a point where he steals a car like he steals it from like a hotel or something and he makes the valet drive him to a golf course and then he's like all right you get out of here and then he drives the car around the golf course while it you could get it if you really want plays that was delightful so i thought it was it was really interesting the violence was shocking like the him at the beginning when that guy won't give him his bicycle and he like destroys him you're like jesus kids this is about a bicycle (laughs) things are not going to go well with this guy there's a lot of like suppressed rage but it was super interesting good movie yeah thanks dad (laughs) yay we love a suggestion that we wouldn't otherwise have known to watch so I think we did pretty well with the, the extra movies. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we could lose three nominees and <laughs> and slap three of these babies. In there. Yeah, <laughs> I think that would be perfectly acceptable. So these are the ones that we chose to watch. Obviously, if you look at the sort of AFI list, the only one on the AFI list from this year is American Graffiti at sixty-two. Questionable. Questionable. We both think, but I think. There's a lot of good movies this year. They just weren't all nominated. The crop of mm-hmm. nominees this year I found kind of head scratching. Yeah. Strange group of movies. So all of that said, what do we think should have won? I really like The Sting. I think it is so much fun. I think it is super well constructed. Mm-hmm. Part of me is like, did they give it to The Sting? Because they didn't give it to Butch Cassidy. And they're like, we got to reward this trio at some point. At some point. Maybe, yeah. And I understand too, right, obviously The Exorcist was probably very divisive, maybe particularly among older Academy voters. Yes. (laughs) But in terms of like cultural impact, 
I don't know. I lean exorcist if I'm honest. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the exorcist is just an indelible part of the American culture at this point. And there is something that is just kind of undeniable about it. Not that I think every piece of it is like perfect or what I would have done necessarily, but it, it just is like you watch it and you're like, they have realized a vision. <laughs> like yeah. they really fucking did that, right? And it just feels so unlike anything else of the time. It's even now still feels memorably provocative compared mm-hmm. to things that people make today. I can't fault them if they had decided to give it to The Exorcist. I don't have a problem with this thing, but The Exorcist is probably a more important movie. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of mixed about it. Like, I hate to say they got it wrong because I think they're what they picked was fine. Sting is excellent. But The Exorcist, I wouldn't be mad if that had a best picture next to its name. No. And again, you know, we love a genre film. Let's yeah. Give it to this horror movie. Come on. Because how often are you going to give it to a horror movie? Not, Not until often. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. But it's really something. If you haven't seen The Exorcist, like, it's really something. It is. <laughs> it is. If you're squeamish, it might be, it might still actually be too much for you. That's the fascinating thing is like, it still might be too much for you. I don't know that you're going to pass out and vomit, but like, it still might be too much for you. (laughs) It's kind of a lot. Yeah. For sensitive viewers, it might be too much because I would describe myself as the opposite of a sensitive viewer. And Mm -hmm. I still was a little bit like, whoa. (laughs) Okay. But that said, I think where the Oscars did get it wrong this year is the nominees. Because three of them, no thank you. Yeah. Again, like, maybe American Graffiti felt really, like, new and interesting at the time. Yeah. Which is like, okay. But, like, a touch of class, I don't know. I don't understand that at all. And Ingmar Bergman, it's interesting because I, I think this was coming at a time when he'd had a couple of movies that people did not like. And they were like, sort of the bloom was off the rose. And people they were like, he's back, baby. He's back. A return to form. And you're like, okay. Yeah. I mean, the way people wrote about it was like, it really makes you feel things. And I was like, it didn't make me feel things. But am I not smart enough? <laughs> Who knows? Be interesting. I don't know. We'd be cross-referencing it. Like, it was mostly male reviewers who were like, yes, this is how I process intimacy also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I, for me, I'd slap Enter the Dragon, Serpico, Paper Moon in there. Yeah. I think it's unlikely they would nominate The Harder They Come. That's the thing, Although, yeah. I would say I maybe liked it more than like Serpico. But... Get an Enter the Dragon in there, at least. Like, let's have a fun Obviously. time in the movies. Why would we not want to have a fun time at the movies? Okay. So, a little bit mixed on whether they got it wrong. Wrong in some ways. Okay in yeah. others. Yeah. Should we take a trip down the lane to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the man's not alive in 1973. So, what are we doing with him? Let's do some dream casting. What about Jake Gyllenhaal as a young priest? I think he'd be great. That That's one of the first things that jumps out to me because it just reads as his type. I, I actually really liked the actor that plays the young priest. I did, I did too. I, I don't think I've ever seen that guy in anything else, but I was like, he's good. But that guy just sort of like, you, you could see the vibes. I could see Jake Gyllenhaal in that role. Again, not sure I want to take that role away from the guy who we've never seen in anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let him have, but Jake would have been good. You can't really put him in the sting because you're definitely not taking out any of those guys. He could be in American Graffiti, but to me, American Graffiti was just sort of like 
okay. Would he be? Would he be the cool guy? Would he like which? Maybe Dreyfus. Yeah, my first instinct is Dreyfus. Being haunted by Suzanne Summers. Yeah. <laughs> I think Jake Gyllenhaal could be haunted by Suzanne Summers. But probably the most interesting role for him of the nominees is the young priest. Yes. Although that guy was very good. You're absolutely yeah. right. Although, intri- I think I was reading, I think Max von Sydow was only in his early 40s when he played the old priest. They did Are a lot of makeup kidding? on him. He looks so old. <laughs> they did, they put makeup on him. So actually, Jake Gyllenhaal is technically old priest age right now. <laughs> Can you imagine if they cast Jake Gyllenhaal as like a 70-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> old priest. That's amazing. I had no idea. The, the, I guess we should say the makeup is great then. He was a convincing old man. He was. Good good old man makeup, obviously good demon-possessed child makeup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the makeup department. Yeah, I think we said, right, Elephant Man was before the makeup award, so this was obviously mm-hmm. also before the makeup award. Missed opportunity. Yeah. It is a missed opportunity. But apparently this wasn't enough. You had to go to the extreme of making the Elephant Man before they were like, someone should probably recognize this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Conclusions. Indeed. Do we see ourselves coming back to any of these movies? I mean, I'd watch Enter the Dragon again any day. Yeah, it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think The Sting has rewatchability. Yep. The Exorcist is like a lot. Yeah. But maybe someday. <laughs> maybe. Maybe a Halloween will roll around and I'll be like, time for spooky movie time. Spooky movie let's, time. Let's do an Exorcist. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought there was some pretty, pretty good stuff and yeah. some pretty weird stuff. Yeah. In the terms of what have we learned, like I, I am, I, I got to the end of these nominees and I was like, I, I'm baffled by some of these choices, guys. I haven't learned anything other than like, know. you should give Oscars to Paul Newman and Robert Redford. That's always a good sure. choice. It's a safe bet. <laughs> it's a safe bet. But yeah, this, this. I mean, particularly, I think, A Touch of Glass. I don't get it. I don't get why that is nominated for Best Picture. What about it is so interesting? Like, Cries and Whispers, I at least get that you watch it and you're like, I'm watching an art film. This has things to say. (laughs) Bergman. Yeah. Yes. Aren't I smart? I like this movie. I like this movie for smart people. (laughs) No offense, of course, if you like Cries and Whispers. I mean, if you like Cries and Whispers, you're much smarter than us. Yeah. No, A Touch of Class was the most... I, I really... I finished that movie and I was like, what was what was that? I, I guess it's a movie for men who relate to having unsuccessful affairs. I don't really yeah, like, know. I would like to cheat on my wife. And you're like, cool. Good thing I watched this cautionary tale. Now I won't. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what you're supposed to take out of that movie. Yeah. Okay, let's look at our patterns. Angry white guys? Not really. Maybe Ron Howard. <laughs> yeah, he's the most. He's the most toxically masculine trying to coerce his girlfriend to have sex with him. Yeah. And he's like, she's like, I don't really want to because she's mad at him. And he's like, you do want to. And you're like, oh, my God, he's a villain. Yeah, he's real bad. <laughs> and eventually she's like fine just do it and he's like i'm not gonna well not if you're gonna be like this yeah like god he's awful it's really bad i'm sad they ended up together that bummed me out they won't end up together they're 18 
Yeah, but I wanted to break up with him today. I know. That would have been nice. Okay, biopics. We did not have any. Not okay, nary a biopic. That's interesting, too. Very interesting. And then when we visit our original ideas, we have two. American mm-hmm. Graffiti is an original idea that actually, I believe, was Francis Ford Coppola's idea, and he gave it to George Lucas, which is an interesting sequence of events. And then Thanks, Francis. Cries and Whispers is original, as we told you, inspired by a vision of four women in a red room. <laughs> but what the other vision. three are based on IP. So A Touch of Glass was a short story, The Exorcist, a novel, and The Sting, a book about actually two real-life brother con artists very interesting very interesting i wonder i was just, i just had like a, a thought of like hmm, maybe you should read the exorcist I wonder if that's my, really see i was book. just talking to my dad about this he uh-huh. says at the time it was terrifying he was like i was scared all year that year i read the book and it was scary i read the movie and it was scary <laughs> he said the same thing about jaws they they all read the book mm-hmm. for jaws and it was scary yeah. and then the movie was scary so like this was the thing at the time i i struggle i think because the only times I've tried to read any kind of horror thing, I, you know, you know I have no visual imagination. I do. <laughs> I can't really scare myself with a book. I don't understand how to do yeah. it. But but maybe. I just, I, again, like, I think there's so much interesting character stuff happening yes. in The Exorcist. I'm not even thinking, like, oh, it would be more scary. I'm just like, maybe they, they dig in more. Because I think the thing, also, like, I didn't mention this during the review, but, like, they don't really explain why Regan gets possessed. Mm-mm. Like, why the demon is in that house? Did it come from Iraq? Like, it it's just very happens. unclear. It just happens. Demons Which are arguably just scarier. Floating around out there, and you could become afflicted for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't know. I think it could be an interesting read, even if it's not scary. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff in that book that, or in that movie, that felt kind of literary. Like a, a mm-hmm. lot of what was bumping me as I was watching it was all stuff where you're like, "This is, feels like a book." Like you've chosen yeah. these really interesting things. Nothing is streamlined in a way that's supposed to help me move the plot along. I keep right. finding out things about people and being like, "Sorry, what? <laughs> these are the weirdest details you could have included about these yeah. people." So that sort of felt very of the book, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay, very interesting. We're adding a new feature. Yes, not to make this podcast even longer, but now that we have our Instagram up and running, we have a place to put some of the stats that we are internally tracking and then also talked about in our stats episode. One of our things that we've been putting together and tracking but haven't had a place for it to live where someone could see it, so it would be confusing to just talk about, Mm -hmm. is we have been ranking the best, best picture winner. So taking each best picture winner and saying... Where does it land of the ones that we've seen? So this will now pop up on our Instagram after we will release the episode and you'll be able to see our our full list. So we thought that in the episode, we would talk about where we want to slot it in to the ranking. So you'll be able to see this list on our Instagram, but for now, it'll be a little bit of a mystery to you when we start talking about where things are going to go, but it will all become clear when you look at it. So to slot in the sting into this list, mm-hmm. um, what do you think? I mean, I liked it a lot. So I think we're going we're too. We're going fairly high up on our list because, to be fair, at this point, there are quite a few winners that we didn't love. <laughs> yes, that's true. I feel like I'm leaning six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Do you think even okay. higher? I was very much in the like somewhere around Rocky, which is our six right now. I could go higher. I'm always wary 
of going too much higher because we have this issue with Lord of the Rings between us. <laughs> tough. Lord of the Rings is this is this wall in our list where <laughs> it is probably the best picture winner we disagree about the most. Yeah. So I, I like to grant you some grace with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Thank you. It's very so generous of I you. I think my thought was somewhere in the Rocky neighborhood. Do we think higher or lower than Forrest Gump, I guess, becomes the question. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, it's tough because the sting doesn't make me cry. It doesn't make no. me feel as wide a range of emotions. Yeah. I would say. So my instinct is to, is to stick it right in between Rocky and Forrest Gump. Make it our new number six. Where are you? That was absolutely my instinct as well. I think I like it just as much, probably a little bit more than Rocky. And you're not experiencing as much of the like spectrum of human emotions as you are with Forrest Gump. So let's stick it in there at number six, a new number six. Just for reference, and again, you'll see that, right? We have... 25 Best Picture winners now. So six out of 25. Quite good. Not bad. Quite good. Well done, The Sting. It's just such a well-structured movie. The script is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you just like watching The Boys. I know. I always like watching The Boys. I love when Paul Newman comes into the poker scene and he's late and he's like, sorry, I was taking a crap. Oh, my God. He's so funny. His whole thing in that scene is that he's pretending to be drunk and like boorish. Belligerent. (laughs) So that they'll underestimate him. (laughs) And he's really funny. What I was going to say is we love the boys. What we should put on our Instagram is that picture you found of them playing ping pong because I think everyone in the world needs to see that. That's so good. All right. We'll post that too. Okay, so that is 1973. I think, you know, very interesting. What an interesting year. Very interesting year. What are we talking about next time? Next time we're talking about the 83rd Academy Awards or the films of 2010. The nominees that year were 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The King's Speech, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. What a year. Yeah. So this will be a two-parter because we got more than five nominees. Which of these maybe have you not seen? (laughs) I have seen all of these films except for Black Swan. Mm -hmm. I watched all of them the year that they were released and for some reason just never got around to Black Swan. So I think we all should be working on the theory that uh, Darren Aronofsky is my nemesis and that Mm -hmm. is why I have not watched it, though that cannot be proven. Because I don't think I've seen a single Darren Aronofsky movie. It's a rumor we're starting about you. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, I will, I guess, have to watch my Nemesis's movie Black Swan. But other than that, I've seen them all. How about yours? I think it will also be easier just because it's a little fewer number. I have not seen 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Kids Are All Right, and The Social Network. But I've seen the rest of them, so... All right. I have a little bit more to make up. but We have a lot of knowledge to go on, though, and I think we feel already pretty good about this year. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm excited to get back into rewatching a lot of these. Should be a good time. In the meantime, if you have comments, questions, and concerns, please bring us your thoughts at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you are enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.